Dear friends, consider how the only way we can access our inner worlds is by using symbols. After all, our inner lives, our emotions, our thoughts, dreams, memories are otherwise invisible and can only be communicated symbolically. With this in mind, many have identified that the timeless symbols in our myths and fairy tales, far from being pure fantastical fantasy, are in fact humanity's best attempts at describing the worlds within us. After all, we know that within us, our anger is a fire-breathing dragon, our midlife crises is being lost in a dark forest, and our true selves can feel like an abducted princess. These archetypes are real, then, and as Austrian psychologist Bruno Bettelheim famously says, fairy tales' purpose is to help us find language to express what's going on inside. Mm. And the never-ending story does this extraordinarily well. You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our journey to God. The NeverEnding Story is a very iconic film, if any of you had your childhood in the late 80s and early 90s. Based on the novel by Michael Ende, The NeverEnding Story isn't just another film among many. It totally immerses you into the world of Fantasia, Atreyu, Orin, and Falcor the Luck Dragon. Its rewatchability proves that its symbols speak to us on multiple levels, hinting at the mythic character of the story mentioned in the introduction. We will deep dive into some of these today, but for a refresher, here is a synopsis of the story. The story opens with a little boy named Bastion Bucks, who had just lost his mother to cancer. This poor fella is depressed, withdrawn and coping with his grief by escaping into the world of books. But his father, a worldly pragmatic businessman, tells him to get his head out of the clouds and to keep his feet on the ground and to live in the reality poor Bastion tries to that day, but reality, as it were, was met with three school bullies who harass him on the way to school, throwing him into a dumpster. Running away from them, he finds himself hiding in an old bookshop where he meets the enigmatic Mr. Coriander, who is initially impressed by how much Bastion knows about books. But the book Mr. Coriander was reading was different. It wasn't safe. You became the characters themselves. This book is of course the never-ending story, a beautifully bound book with a mysterious symbol on the front. Curiosity seizes Bastion, and when the chance comes, he steals the book for a short time, not realising that Mr. Coriander had willed him to do so. Bastion then takes the book to his school, shirks his math test, and goes up into the school attic to tuck into the story in private. He reads about a land called Fantasia, where a warrior named Atreyu is summoned to embark on a perilous quest to save his land. Atreyu learns that he must find a way to stop the Nothing, which is a nihilistic force consuming Fantasia and literally erasing everything in its path. 
As it turns out, even the childlike empress, the ruler of Fantasia, has been affected by the nothing and is now dying of an incurable illness. On his quest to stop the nothing and save the empress, Atreya journeys through many challenges, including losing his best friend, his horse, in the heartbreaking swamps of sadness, surviving the Sphinx gates, battling blizzards and facing off to the demonic Gamork. Along the way, he also meets characters that aid him on his quest, like the Luck Dragon Falcor, Ingiwook, and Urgul. Now, what's fascinating is that in parallel to all this, as Bashan continues to read about Atreyu, he soon discovers a personal connection to the unfolding story. It becomes clear that his involvement is not merely as a passive reader, he actually plays a vital role in the unfolding events in Fantasia. The narrative blurs the line between fiction and reality. Atreya's journey of finding himself, of coming to bravery and battling grief, is ultimately Bastion's story. In the climatic final scene, Atreya has fought his way all the way to the ivory tower where he is now face to face with the ill, childlike empress, who says that the only way to save her was to give her a new name, a name that only the earthling child, Bastion, could give. Initially disbelieving that he could have such an impact on the entire world of fiction, Bastion finally pushes past his dad's command to keep his feet on the ground. He throws open the shutters of the attic and screams out into the night the name Moonchild, which is actually the name of his mother. Suddenly all becomes dark, and he finds himself now face to face with the child black empress, who is holding a single grain of sand. Fearing it was too late and that all was lost, Bastion realises that in fact it was not too late, that he had begun the rebirth of a new Fantasia from that one grain. Having accomplished his part in the story, he could now recreate the world of Fantasia as he pleases. Bastion does, and Fantasia is reborn, with all our beloved characters who had perished reborn again. The movie then closes with Bastion riding Falcor, soaring into the clouds, the epitome of not having your feet on the ground, <laughs> and having some fun with the bullies at the start of the film. Okay, so there's the story in summary. The key literary buffs among you will probably recognise that the storyline follows the mythical hero's journey, a storyline which is satisfying enough, but what makes the never-ending story particularly compelling is how intertwined the journey of Atreus is with Bastion. It's as if the story is making a point to help us realise that the real hero's journey is the inner journey, one we must all take. Remember friends that all the fantastic imagery found in fairy tales, like the never-ending stories such as dragons, dark forests, hidden treasure, demonic wolves, abducted princesses, are symbols of happenings within us. This is what makes the film so rewatchable. Just as Atreya's journey is really the inner journey of Bastion, when we watch our favourite myths and fairy tales, try and identify the same journeys going on within you, especially if you're finding a particular story rewatchable over and over again. As a personal example, I recognise that one of the reasons The Lord of the Rings was and is so rewatchable for me is precisely because I deeply identify with the Hobbit's love for comfort and security in the Shire, and yet... I feel the tension of being called out of it and to play my part in a bigger story, one that would absolutely involve me leaving my place of safety. This tension is present not just through the hobbits in Lord of the Rings, but in all the main characters. So when I started paying attention to Tolkien's symbolic depiction of my inner world, 
I was able to find inspiration to act differently in the outer world. Does this all sound rather strange? If yes, this is probably because our culture has generally lost the capacity to understand the significance of symbols. Insert my master's thesis. But consider how central symbols are to Catholic spirituality. After all, the entire spiritual realm of God Himself, the heaven, angels and demons, the kingdom of God, can only be known to us through symbols. We cannot otherwise perceive the invisible. God, who is pure spirit, cannot be grasped in any other way than symbolically. That is, of course, until Jesus enters the world, who, if you like, became the perfect symbol of God. He who made God visible, accessible. You know, Jesus says, those who have seen me have seen the Father. Therefore, to think of Jesus merely as a wise teacher is missing the point entirely. He was and is the icon of God, the symbol of God, the myth that became reality, as C.S. Lewis once famously said. All of which I've been describing is what Catholics call sacramentality which is a word that says we can truly gain access to God through symbols. And our entire sacramental life of bread and wine and oil and water proves how significant this is. But again, symbols are not just useful for understanding the spiritual realm out there. They are really important for navigating the rich world within us. With this logic, you can begin to understand how the happenings in the never-ending story actually symbolises Bastion's tumultuous inner world and the journey he must go on in order to find resolution. He was experiencing the nothing, eating away at his world. How? Recall how in the beginning of the movie, Bastion is in a state of grief over the loss of his mother. His world had collapsed, as it were, and he was emotionless, passionless, friendless, and if he's skipping school is an indication, aimless too. In other words, the nothing was consuming Bastion's world, almost to the point of leaving only a hollow shell of a boy. He literally doesn't even smile until the end of the movie. Just as the nothing was threatening every part of Fantasia, so too was Bastion's existential angst threatening everything about his boyhood. Atreyu, then, was a sort of symbol of his inner hero that needed to find a way out and to stop the nothing. One of the most emotional scenes in the movie is when Atreyu is wading through the swamps of sadness, symbolic of Bastion's own grief. And then, Atreyu loses his beloved horse, Artex, into the sinking bog. This tearjerker of a scene has traumatised kids ever since, but it was necessary because it demonstrated the pain of Bastion losing his own mother a scene we never actually see in the movie. What makes the never-ending story compelling is that Atreya then perseveres through his grief, wading through it with his strength's limit, and though he encounters the cynical sage Mola and almost gets mauled by Gamork, fate steps in, as it were, in the form of Falcor, the luck dragon, who sweeps in from heaven and takes him away for some much-needed R&R time. Perhaps such a friendly, loyal companion is something that Bastion himself desperately needed, instead of just an emotionally distant father. Now, much more happens to Atreyu that is symbolic of the journey Bastion needed to go on, including the grief of losing even Falcor and eventually Orin itself. But I'll jump to the final scene, which is most profound. In it, he realises that the only way to save both worlds was to give the childlike Empress a new name. His calling out Moonchild into the night sky is such a liberating moment for him, but why? 
The childlike empress symbolizes Bastion's innermost, purest self, the part of him that had become locked away by the nothing. As a Christian, you could say that the childlike empress symbolizes the soul made in the image of God, for we are literally children of royalty. What's the significance of Bastion giving the empress a new name? In biblical theology, when we name something, we have claim over that thing. We gain dominion over it. You'll see this when God tells Adam to name the animals in Genesis. God was showing us that mankind are not just another animal. Rather, we have claim over them and can subdue them. Later in the Bible then, every other key figure like Abraham, Sarah or Saul gets renamed by God when he calls them. And thus he's indicating his divine ownership upon them. He is now their God and they are his people. Names matter. And then, when Jesus is casting out demons, he first demands their names. For when you can name something, you gain authority over it. Okay, I think you're getting the point. So it goes with us naming parts of our inner world. When we can actually name a particular emotion or memory or thought pattern or trauma, etc., we begin to have mastery over it. Otherwise, it just lies in our unconscious and controls us without our consent, like a phantom rider pulling our reins. For example, if a person can name their fear of authority figures as really their childhood fear of dad, that person becomes a lot freer to relate to their boss or parish priest, etc. with greater freedom, because they realize the priest is not dad, even if their body gets anxious. The more vocabulary we develop for our inner worlds, the more power we have over it, and the more freedom we'll experience from it. So, when Bastion names the childlike empress after his own mother, he gains mastery over the grief that was causing the nothing, by calling out the very thing it had been trying to destroy, the memory of his mother. It was as if the childlike empress had finally given him permission to name the one thing his father had told him to suppress. Just as importantly, Bastion was now joining his mother's memory to his true self, allowing his true self to finally be reborn again. The fact that the childlike empress is the same age as Bastion is significant, because she is him, but the part of him that had become trapped. By giving her his mother's name, he could now move ahead into the future with freedom and authenticity. And so the entire Fantasia, Bastion's inner world, is reborn. If the Swamps of Sadness scene was the saddest in the film, then probably the most dramatic is the scene where Atreya needs to cross the Yellow Sphinx Gates in order to find the Southern Oracle. These giant gates, however, are no small challenge, for only the worthy may pass. Peering through armour and status, the eyes of the two Sphinx look straight into the hearts of those who cross, and if they deem them unworthy, will shoot lightning bolts from their eyes and smite the would-be hero on the spot. We in fact see this happening to a poor knight just before Atreya tries to enter through the gate. As it turns out, one must maintain confidence in their quest and to not doubt the call that was placed upon them in order to cross. 
Anything less and Atreya too will perish. So Atreya nearly loses his own confidence when he sees the dead knight, but mysteriously encouraged by the voice of Bastion and the promise of Orin around his neck, he finds it within himself to make a dash for it, leaping through the gates while two lightning bolts just miss their target. For nostalgia's sake, here is the audio of that clip. Okay, so why is this scene so iconic? In the classical hero's journey, the Sphinx Gates represents what Joseph Campbell calls the Threshold Guardian, or Threshold Guardians. Whenever the hero hears a call, he is always invited to leave a place of comfort and cross some threshold into the world of the unknown. This is what an adventure is. However, what often prevents the hero from leaving his place of security is some sort of test or some sort of resistance called the Threshold Guardians. They come in many forms, such as Aunt Beru telling Luke Skywalker, don't leave Tatooine to go and save the galaxy, we need you here on the farm. Or it could be Uncle Vernon telling Harry Potter, there's no such thing as magic, just as he was on the verge of discovering the magical world. In our classical video games, the Threshold Guardian is the end of level boss, which, once defeated, allows you to advance from the known levels into the next unknown levels. The point is, many of us, you and I, get stuck, stay in a rut or never leave home per se, because we never anticipate the Threshold Guardians trying to push us back into a place of security, testing our hero's journey. The same truth absolutely remains true for the spiritual life. When we hear God's call and respond to it, expect the threshold guardians to push you back, whether it comes in the form of the world, the flesh, or the devil himself. Even Jesus was tested by a threshold guardian straight after his commissioning, his baptism, when the devil himself tempts him in the wilderness to fall back into the comfortable place of kingly comfort rather than advance into the mission of the suffering Messiah. What's the message here? Expect the threshold guardians, dear friends. When you hear a call from God to go to a new place, whether out there in the real world or within your own self, expect pushback. Expect forces to test you, to tell you, you are not worthy, you didn't hear the call right, stay at home where it's comfortable. Failure to realise this is precisely the reason why so many good Catholics have a wonderful time on retreat or on pilgrimage or on camp, but soon fall back into their familiar dull routine. Because the threshold guardians will try and push you back to the safer side of the threshold, even if that place was once a prison.
This is where the symbolism of Atreyu crossing the Sphinx gates is so powerful. We know what it's like to falter before them. They are not themselves evil, for the real danger in the never-ending story is the nothing. Rather, the Sphinx gates seeks to examine the resolve of all who dare to cross them. But once we do, we can never be the same person again. We are reborn into the hero we were called to be. And so on that note, dear friends, I leave you with the challenge of identifying what are the threshold guardians in my life? What is preventing me from following God's call? What force do I encounter over and over again that pushes me back, that prefers I stay safe and secure and trapped? Bring these to prayer, and like Atreyu, seek the divine aid available to you in order to deepen in your call and to find the resolve to push past them. Hear God's voice through Bastion when he says, Be confident, be confident, and remain steadfast in your call. On that note, dear friends, dramatically, <laughs> until next time, I wish you all the best. Journey forth, take care, and God bless.